Good evening, guys. My name's uh, David, and uh, I'm new here to the Missio community. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about our story, but really just wanted to start off by uh, just expressing how beautiful this season has been for us. I know sometimes when you're in one place for a long time, you don't realize like how good you have it, right? It, it's uh, that idea that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I know you're not contempt at this place. I'm not saying that, but there is a place where you kind of get dulled to the beauty that is around you when you're in it all of the time. And for Tara and I and our family, this has been an amazing refreshing season for us um, to come in. We've we've spent the last three and a half years in a different context, serving, loving it, but it was a little bit less than life-giving for us. And we've come into this place and have really felt a freedom to breathe, be ourselves, and really explore what God has for us. And so I just want to thank you guys for your kindness and how welcoming you've been. And I wanted to remind you how beautiful this space is. And I'm not talking about this space. I'm talking about the space that Missio Mesa has created for people to pursue Jesus together for the sake of the world. It's been absolutely beautiful to witness from the outside and then to be invited into it and experience it um, that way. I want to start with a, a quote that has been meaningful to me. It's, it's really what launched me into a new exploration of God, and um, it's not the quote on the screen because uh, I did not make a slide for it if you're looking at it, but it's by a guy named A.W. Tozer. And he says this, he says, whatever um, comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I remember it was about 10 years ago that I read that and I couldn't get it out of my mind. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And us here at Missio, we know what good old A.W. Tozer means. And, and here's what he means. He means that all of us are being defined by some story. There, there, there's some narrative running in the background of our minds and in our lives that are defining the way we experience the world. They're defining the way we relate to God and the way that we relate to God's creation, the way we relate to one another. All of us have some sort of narrative that's defining us. And, and here's the deal. There's only really three options when it comes to the stories that are defining us. Some of these stories are just flat out lies, right? They're just not true. They're, they're, they're telling us that things will satisfy our hearts and our longings, and they just won't. They're telling us who we need to be to uh, find a sense of fulfillment in the world, and we just can't ever arrive at that place. So some of these stories are just lies. But, but if we're honest, some of these stories are just incomplete. And if I'm going to be honest, most of my Christian life has been trying to live in an incomplete story. Right where I have this truncated view about um, you, you know about God and Christianity and faith and my whole life is just compartmentalized and I'm trying to shove Jesus in here and shove Jesus in there and I have all of these incomplete stories um, running through my mind and they're just not satisfying. And over the last year or seven months now, we have been going through the true story the true story of the world, the one story that can bring meaning and shape to our lives. The, the, the story that's not just the true story, which I want us to hear, it is the true story of the world. It's not just coming up and over the lies that we're being told, but it's also the full story 
the complete story, the whole story. It's the story that makes sense of date night. And it's the story that makes sense of me wrestling with my son on the ground on a Wednesday night when I'm tired from work. It's the story that makes sense of why I feel um, exhausted at the end of the week every single week. It's the story that tells us the fullness of what life really is. It tells us who God is, who we are, where we are, and what's wrong with the world and how it's fixed. It's the true story of the world. And I read this the other day, this guy named uh, Rich Viotas in his book, The Deeply Formed Life. He said this, he said, scripture is not to be approached as an object of our inquiry, but as an animating force setting its gaze on us. And and here's what Rich is saying. He's saying the true story of God, the story that we find ourselves in in Scripture, the story that we've been going through from creation to rebellion to the promise to where we'll find ourselves at tonight in in the story of redemption, the rescuer, the redeemer has come in Jesus Christ, that this story is meant to be an animating force in our lives. Right? It, it brings to life the things that have been gone dormant because of sin and brokenness. Right, It brings to life, it breathes life into our lungs when we feel like we're a people that just couldn't catch our breath. This is the story that breathes life into our lungs. And I love it. And here's what I love about it. it says, and it set its gaze on us. This is a story for you and I. This is a story that God has given us with us in mind. It's a beautiful, absolute beautiful story. And I think it's important over the last seven months, we've looked at this entire story. We've looked at that first down arrow, which is creation, that God has made a beautiful world. He's he's created something beautiful out of nothing. And he set everything in its right and proper place. And he created you and I, man, to bear his image. He created us in his likeness, male and female. And not only were we created in God's image, but we were created with a purpose, right? We've been given this authority over the earth to subdue the earth and multiply it, to take the materials that God has given us and make something beautiful out of it, to, to promote human flourishing, to expand the boundaries of the garden. But then as we move, the X reminds us that The story ends there. Man and woman, God's first humans, rebelled against God. And brokenness entered into the world. And what we saw is that that, that rebellion against God, that when you try to live life apart from God, everything goes bad. Everything becomes broken. And we hear this, we see this long story of sin infecting God's good creation right? Tainting everything with lies and rebellion. And then we see the forward arrow is this promise. And and really, even in the story of, of rebellion, back in the X, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. And he said he was going to crush the head of the serpent. He was going to, he was going to kill the thing that is killing his creation, right? He was going to redeem us. He was going to, to, to fix all the things that are broken by sin. He was going to undo what the serpent had done and bring life again back into the earth. And the thing that we've been waiting for is the thing we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Jesus has come. 
And, and last week we saw Jesus enter into his public ministry in his baptism and the heavens open up and the spirit comes down and we hear these beautiful words spoken over Jesus and it's this, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And because of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, because of the, of the life that Jesus lived and the death he died and he was victorious over sin, Satan, and death, you and I can hear the pleasures of God where God now says, you are my beloved children. You're my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And this week, we're gonna look at another story where Jesus comes in and begins to continue to shape our imagination for what it means to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. What does it mean for us to be a people who live in light of the pleasures of God because of what Jesus has done? That's what we're going to be looking at in John chapter 2. But here's what I want to do. Before we do that, I want to start off with a little conversation. And it's this. As we've gone through the story, as we've moved from creation to rebellion to promise, now to redemption in Jesus, how has your understanding of God shifted? And I'm going to tell you a, a, a little story real quick as you guys are, are thinking about this to, to discuss. I've had moments in my faith in my life where my understanding of God and the kingdom of God that just have had these major shifts. And one, one of them is this story of me and my son Moses. It happened about five or six years ago. We were out in the yard and we were uh, working. We were sweating. Uh, you know, we were, we were like pulling weeds and mowing lawns. And, you know, little Mo was like, sitting in between me and the lawnmower and he had his hands on the lawnmower and you know we're, we're mowing it and then when we get done he comes in and he's like mom i mowed the lawn when really i mowed the lawn right he just got to participate by holding on for the ride but we come in from a really um tiring work and we just collapse on the couch and moses crawls up on my chest and we just have one of these beautiful father-son moments right where we're like we're resting in our labor, right? And, and, and we're breathing. Our breathing has a cadence to it. We're, we're like in sync, right? Like both of us, our hearts are beating in sync. We just have this beautiful moment. If you know my son, he's like the cutest little kid ever. And right in the middle of this sweet father and son moment, Moses looks up at me with his big blue eyes and he pats me on the belly and he says this, my big fat daddy. <laughs> Like, all right, what do you think I did, right? I did what every good father would do. I spanked him and sent him to his room, right? No, of course not. Because here's what happened in that moment is Moses wasn't making some sort of social commentary on my dad bot, which I'm proud of. I've worked very hard. I've invested a lot of money in this dad bot. He wasn't saying that, but here's what Moses was saying. I'm safe. Right In this moment, as, as my full weight is resting on my father, as, as I'm breathing in and he's breathing out, as my full weight is resting on my father, the bigness of my father has consumed me and I'm safe. And that was one of the moments that I just, I could never shake loose from my mind. Because up until that moment, growing up in a broken home, not seeing a really good father, I had a hard time relating to God as a father. I never knew what it meant to have a childlike faith. And in that moment, I realized to have a childlike faith is not to shrink back in fear from the bigness of God, but to be fully present and lead into it, to find safety in it. It was this absolute beautiful moment. 
And I carry that into me. And as I look back on the story, it's those stories that begin to shape my understanding of how it is we're supposed to relate to God. And so here's what I want to hear from you guys is how in the last seven months has your understanding of the kingdom of God shifted as we've moved through this story? So go ahead and break up into groups of two or three and and talk a little bit about that. As we continue to move through the story, my prayer is that our imagination about God and his kingdom and what it means to be a human in a non-human world would expand. That our imagination would increase, that we would grow, and that we would be shaped by this story. And so open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. I I believe that uh, the apostle John um, has this in mind as well, is that he is really wanting the church in this cultural moment in the first century to really see something different about what Jesus's life, death, and resurrection has done. And so we're going to read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, a beautiful story titled The Wedding at Cana, and it, it is Jesus's first miracle. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the story. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you that Um, the good news has broken into human history, God. We thank you that salvation has come, that redemption has started, that rescue is not some future reality, but it's a promise for today. God, would you shape us as we dive into this story? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this is a unique passage of scripture because it's it's not found in the other three gospels. There's a lot of stuff in, in John that's that's like that. It's a very unique gospel. And like I said, I really believe that that John is writing this gospel with the other three gospels in mind. And, and, and he's not going back to correct something or to change something, but what he's doing is he's noticing in culture that there might be some holes in people's understanding of who Jesus is. And so he goes in and as he's recounting Jesus's life, he's going to tell it from a different angle that helps us to see something a little bit differently than the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke help us see. And so let's take a, a, a look at this, uh, at this story, Jesus's first miracle. On the third day at a wedding, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, ladies, before you burn your bras, just relax. It doesn't mean what you think it means. So Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink. So 
basically of everyone who's gotten drunk, the bad wine, the cheap wine comes out, but not this time. You have saved the best till now. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, if you've read the other three gospels, this is a quirky little story. Right? It's, a, it's a strange miracle, right? It's, it's not like, you know, uh, Jesus is casting out demons or healing the lame or the sick. He's not commanding the winds and the waves. He's not raising someone from the dead. Those are miracles, right? Here, it's Jesus doing a little like party trick, right? He's turning water into wine. What the heck is that about? But here's what's important. It's actually the miracle or, 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 or the, the wedding is actually not the main part of the story. The wedding's in the backdrop. And he, here's what it is. In that culture, a wedding was a big deal. Like for some of these people, especially in more uh, impoverished areas, a wedding would have been a, a once in a lifetime event. It was special to be a part of a wedding. They lasted sometimes up to seven days. And, and there was a lot of pressure on the bride and the groom and the master of the ceremony to make sure that everybody had a good experience. I was actually reading in some first century law. There is actually a law that a guest can sue the master of ceremony if, if, the, if they run out of uh, or if they don't provide enough wine, food and drink for the guests there at the party. So this is a big deal, not to mention that the bride and groom would have, would have been culturally shamed if the wedding was a bust. And so what we read is not just, uh, you know, this family is, it, 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 what's at stake for this family is not just a bad night, but it's a bad name. These teenagers who are getting married, which in that culture was about the age, would have started off with a bad name. Their identity would have been marred. They would have entered into a story of shame and lack instead of a story of joy and abundance that a wedding was supposed to provide, not just for them, but for the whole community that was there. But that is just the backdrop of the story. It's interesting. You'll notice that the, the bride and groom aren't really talked about that much. The wedding really isn't talked about that much. What's talked about is the problem and Jesus and this miracle. And so here's what I want to do. I want to I want to start by telling talking about uh, two things. One is the revelation that I believe John is trying to give us in this story. This beautiful story about Jesus coming to rescue two teenagers who are going to start life off with a marred story. He comes in and rescues. What do you think John's trying to teach us? I want to talk about the revelation. Then I want to give us three invitations that I think this passage is. The, the first thing is I want to move, I want to zoom out. What is the revelation in this text? What is it that John is trying to reveal? Well, we're going to find it at the last verse. It says plainly here that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he did two things. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed. And so the design of this moment or, the, or, or, or what happened, the fruit of this moment was something was revealed about the glory of Jesus Christ in this moment. What is it? That he's magic? That he can turn water to wine? Is that the glory that's here? 
And it, it was powerful enough in this moment that his disciples from that moment believed in him. It stirred up in them saying, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one that had been promised from the beginning to step on the head of the serpent and make all things right. So they believed in him. See, in John's gospel, it's, it's surrounded actually by seven signs. This is the first of seven signs that John is revealing, and he organizes his whole gospel around these seven signs. The first is Jesus turning water into wine. The last is Jesus raising his buddy Lazarus from the dead. And, and many scholars think that what John's doing is he's, he, he is mirroring what happens in the Exodus story. And so there was 10 plagues. The first plague was, uh, was uh, uh, God turning the Nile River into blood. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn child of every um, person in Egypt. And, and, he, and what, what, uh, what a lot of scholars believe is that what John's doing is he's showing how Jesus has come to reverse the devastating effects of the sin, where a river was turned into blood, now water is turned into wine, right? Where, where a, uh, a spirit passed over, the firstborn son has brought death, a dead man is brought to life, right? It's the great reversal. And John knows that his first century readers, when they're reading this, all the language of this text is pointing them back to this Sinai covenant, this wedding covenant. I uh, was listening to a, the radio the other day and they were doing these like bloopers on the radio. And uh, this lady called in to the Department of Transportation complaining about a deer crossing sign. And, and here's what she said. She calls in. She's like, she's like, that deer crossing sign is put in one of the busiest parts of our city. Like, couldn't you put that deer crossing sign somewhere else? Like, couldn't you put this sign like maybe in a rural area, right, where there's not as much traffic? And the person on the other end of the phone's going, ma'am, like, do you think the deer crossing sign is like causing deer to cross? Like, do you, do you think the deer are walking up to the sign and going, oh, this is where I cross? And he had to explain to this lady that the sign was actually a sign of something that's already happening in that moment, right? This is where the deer are crossing. And so the sign isn't to direct the deer to cross here. The sign is so the world knows the deer crossing. And, and here's what I want us to see is John uses a different word than miracle. He uses the word sign because he wants us to know that something unique is happening in this moment. This miracle is to show the disciples that something unique is happening. What is happening? And here's what we're going to see actually in chapter 1 verse 50 right before right before we enter into this story Jesus has an encounter with a guy named Nathaniel. And this is what he says and Nathaniel uh, sees Jesus and declares rabbi you are the son of God you are the king of Israel. And and Jesus is like you're already like declaring that I'm the king of Israel and Jesus said so you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. And then he says this you will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open, the angel of God ascending and descending 
on the Son of Man. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. See, do you know what John is saying? Is that this first sign is the first sign of heaven coming to earth. See, he's, he's already given the illusion of Jacob's ladder, right? Where the angels are coming and going like from heaven to earth. What John is saying is what is happening at this wedding in, in Cana of Galilee is the first sign that heaven has come to earth. That Jesus is not just divine in nature. He doesn't just have the power of God. But this sign is showing us that something is shifting in cosmic history. That from this moment on, heaven is open up. Heaven is here and it is broken into human history through Jesus. And listen, this is the same gospel that Jesus preached in the other gospels. In Mark Chapter 115, he says this, the time has arrived. The kingdom of God is upon you. Repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? The kingdom of heaven is here. And here's what I want us to see is John wants to get it through our minds that Jesus isn't just dealing with our personal sin, that Jesus hasn't just come to die, raise, ascend, and send his Holy Spirit so that we can one day go to heaven. John is saying heaven has now come to us in Jesus Christ, and we're witnessing it by this first miracle that's pointing to this beautiful wedding, which is a reversal of what happened on Mount Sinai. It's this beautiful moment of Jesus saying, heaven has come. And, and have you guys, if you've been around the church in, at all, you, you hear this uh, phrase, now and not yet. Right? Like, like yes, Jesus has come. But it's, he's come now, but we, it's not yet here. We haven't really experienced the fullness of it here. And here's my problem with that language. I like it because it's true. It's accurate language, but most of us gravitate towards the not yet instead of the now, don't we? And I know why. I woke up this morning with aches and pains. You know, my, my wife and I had intense moments of fellowship this week. We have friends who are sick and hurting. We know people who are financially struggling. I know why we gravitate toward not yet, because it seems like everything around us is a not yet reality, right? Because we experience the brokenness of the world around us. But the invitation of the gospel is not just to hope for the not yet. It's to live in the now. See, I have this picture up here that this is what we see normally when we look at this graph is we have these two kingdoms, right? And the kingdom of God is the not yet kingdom, the one we're waiting for, but we live in the kingdom of self where sin rules and death is real and separation from God and one another happens and evil exists in the world and we're always combating lies. It's the kingdom of self that we all experience. And what we long for is the kingdom of God to come for blessing and love and joy and peace and presence to come in Jesus Christ. And we, we feel that dotted line, that separation from the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. But what John is saying and what he wants his readers to see in this text 
is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. And now instead of living in the kingdom of self-reality, longing for the kingdom of God, the next slide looks like this. Where Jesus has come and the kingdom of God is now beginning to overlap and we find ourselves somewhere in the middle of these two realities. The nowness of the kingdom of God is here in Jesus Christ while we still long for the fullness of God's kingdom to consume all of sin, Satan, and death. All that separates us. See, and I think, I think what we need as a church is a now theology. And John knows that, that, that he wants us to see that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. And there's a nowness to this reality. Sigurd uh, Greenham says this in his book, Living in the Kingdom of God. Where Jesus is, there God rules. When you see the person of Jesus Christ, there you see God's role on earth. Where Jesus is, there is salvation. There is new creation. Where Jesus is, there the world is the way God wants it to be. Evil must flee. Justice is established. There is life. There is blessedness. Everything is good. God's rule is there. See, John opens up with this first miracle to show us that in the most obscure places, in the obscure moments, in the obscure time, in this teenager wedding, the kingdom of heaven has broken through. How much more in our lives, in our day, is the kingdom of God here as we exist in that, as the church? If that's true, everything changes. That's the first thing I want to see, the zoom out revelation. The second thing is we zoom in a little bit more is John wants to define the problem. And as we start out this passage, there's verse one, we see that they're at a wedding. Verse two, we see a problem, which is what every story does, right? It, it presents the problem. And here's the problem, no wine. Now, listen, every one of us have experienced this during the pandemic lockdown, haven't we? You go to the Boda box, you click on it, you put your wine glass underneath and a couple of dribs come out and you know, you say, there's no wine. We're out of wine. Right. And remember it was in the middle of lockdown. And so I'm like, woman, my time has not yet come. Like, what do you want of me? What does this have to do with me? Right. I got to go out in the middle of the pandemic and get more wine. We've all experienced that moment where we've run out of something good. And what I love is that in this moment, He's, what John is saying is that a wedding without wine is like a marriage without intimacy. It's like a kingdom without justice. It's like an orchard that bears no fruit. And listen, that is the human condition apart from God. The wine runs out. A life without God is a life where the wine runs out where we're bumping up, not just to our natural human limitations that were created with God, but we're bumped up against the limitations that come because of our sinful reality. There's no wine. The wine runs out. And Jesus has this little conversation with his mom. And, and, and here's, here's what I want to say. It's a weird conversation, right? We read it and, and she comes to Jesus and, she, and they're enjoying themselves at this wedding. And she's like, son, the wine has run out. Jesus, the wine has run out. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not come. Now, listen, I've heard all kinds of, of pastors and theologians explain away this passage. You're like, oh, it's a cultural idiom. It's not rude. And it's not rude. Not in the text. But here's what I want us to see. It is abrupt. It is abrupt. When Jesus says, woman, 
right? It's, it's, it's this phrase of abrupt, like, like I, I want you to look at me. And Jesus, being a good rabbi, is asking this question, what does it have to do with me? And here's what I believe Jesus is doing in the moment. Jesus is helping his mom live in the right story. And in that moment, she's just wanting to fix a problem. She's just wanting to see um, this young couple start off on the right foot, which is a good thing. But what she doesn't realize is this moment is about more than just saving face for young teenagers. It's about expressing for the first time the kingdom of God that has come to earth. And so Jesus is saying, what does this have to do with me? In, In a rabbi fashion, he's saying, this has everything to do with me. Not only am I going to come and help out these teenagers, but I'm going to swing open the gates of heaven and begin redemption. Redemption is going to begin. This is a redemptive hinge for Jesus's ministry. And then I love how he does it. He looks around and he says, okay, give me those ceremonial jars, right? And those ceremonial jars was Jesus's way of saying, look, I'm coming to redeem the law. The good news is that Jesus is doing for us what the law cannot do. He takes these ceremonial cleansing jars that would have been used in this wedding ceremony to prepare the bride and groom to consummate their marriage. You get what I'm saying? And we got kids in the room. We're not going to go any farther than that. But he's taking this and, and listen to what he does. He fills up these ceremonial jars with water, which would have been the appropriate thing to do. But in that moment, he changes them to wine. And here's what he's doing. Jesus is doing for us what the law cannot do because because of sin, those ceremonial cleansing jars, right? They they can protect people from becoming unclean, but they can't fill our hearts with joy. The ceremonial washing can prepare us for worship, but it cannot cause it. The law had reached its limit and Jesus doesn't do away with the law. He doesn't break the jars. He doesn't use, he, he takes them and he fills up the jars with what was lacking in the law. This is the second thing that Jesus, that John wants us to see. The law was broken. It had its limits, not because the law was broken, because we were broken. The law could not cleanse us from sin. It protected us from becoming unclean, but it could not make us unclean. It protected us uh, or prepared us for worship, but it couldn't cause us to worship. It it, uh, told us the way of righteousness, but it couldn't produce the joy of righteousness in our lives. And so Jesus steps into a world without wine and doesn't just replace it. He offers something better and more. Real quick, with that big revelation, I want you to get back in your groups. And I want you to just discuss really quick, how does this re- revelation of God's kingdom excite your imagination? And when we come back, I'm gonna give you three quick things that are gonna prepare us to take communion together. So how does this revelation that heaven is here now And he's come to fill up what is lacking, what the law could not do. How does the revelation of those two things excite your imagination for the kingdom of God now? Go. So what does it mean to live in God's kingdom now? God's kingdom has come in Jesus. And Jesus has stepped into a world without wine. And he doesn't just replace it. He offers something better and more of it. It's overflowing. It's it's the better wine that he 
invites us? How does this excite our imagination for the things of God? How does it mean to be a church who's living in light of the kingdom come Jesus Christ? I think John in this exciting of our imagination is inviting us into three things, right? It's, he's helping us like Jesus was helping Mary live in the right story. But there's a lot of good things that we can do, but if we, if, if, if we do it living in the wrong story, we'll miss out on the purpose. And so I want to give us three things that I think we're invited into from this story. The first is this. You and I are invited in to receive the joy of God's kingdom. And we talked about the birth announcement of Jesus. We talked about an angels who said, I bring you good news of great joy. That, that phrase is, I'm bringing you good news that actually produces joy in you. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and my joy and your joy may be complete. See, in the midst of the not yet, in the midst of pain and brokenness and suffering, we have to believe that the joy of the kingdom is possible. We have to. And, and, and the reason John puts this at the front is Jesus' first miracle because the first thing that he wants us to see about the kingdom of heaven breaking through into broken reality is that the kingdom is a, is a kingdom of joy. Right? It's a kingdom of abundance. This idea of wine would have a long history in shaping Israel's understanding of God's kingdom, of life with God. It was used to celebrate the harvest and used to celebrate weddings and feasts. And in the, in the fourth cup of the Passover meal it's, it, it, that, that they take when we take communion, it's the cup of halal, which is the cup of praise and joy. The kingdom of God has brought joy. The promise of Psalm 104, 15 is this, that in God's new covenant reality, God will bring wine that gladdens the human heart, oil, the Holy Spirit to make their faces shine and bread Jesus that sustains their hearts. See, God is a God of joy and he wants us to enter into his new kingdom reality with the joy of kingdom at our backs, even in pain, even in suffering, even in the realities of brokenness that are around us. And here's what I believe, that we will never embody love well until we learn how to enjoy Jesus and his kingdom. To enjoy it. And I know like following Jesus can feel like trudging through mud sometimes, can it? That's not God's design, right? That's, that's the world, that's the old world brokenness. When we put worldly expectations on one another and, and we put standards on one another that, that we're never meant to live up to or we, we try to get people to be you know, Jesus when in reality they will need to be Jesus's friend and the one who they're saved by. See, so we'll never embody love well until we learn to enjoy grace. In the kingdom of God, it fills up what is lacking. What was lacking at the wedding was good wine. It offers assurance of plenty these six ceremonial jugs were overflowing to the brim with wine. There was gallons and gallons and gallons. God's grace will never run out for you, ever. You cannot outpace God's grace in your life. The kingdom of heaven lacks no good thing. And then one of my favorite things is, is God's kingdom is for others. 
You know who got to enjoy this wine? The unsuspecting guests. None of them turned and praised Jesus or glorified God, right? The, the servants brought the wine. They, they pull it out and give it to the master of ceremony, and he enjoys the things of heaven unsuspectingly. I love this picture is that the kingdom of heaven is even for those that don't even know it or expect it or know to look for it yet. The second thing is that we're invited to take up our role in God's story. We see in this story a wedding. The church is a family of servant ambassadors. We see this wedding representing family. We see these servants living in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Like, Mary talks to the servants and they're like, do whatever he says. That's who we are. We're people who just do what Jesus says. We don't have to muster up work. We don't have to manufacture it. We just learn to listen and say yes to Jesus. And we're ambassadors. We get to be a revelation of Jesus's glory, even to the unsuspecting. The master of the ceremonies got to experience the faith and the obedience of the servants. And then finally, we're invited to rest in Jesus's glory, right? Jesus has given us the better wine. See, and that's what we do when we come to the table every week. This is an invitation to come and find our rest in Jesus Christ, trusting him and his glory, trusting him and his work, trusting him as the one that can take up what's lacking in us and make something beautiful and better out of it. And what I love is that, that for us as the believer, water and wine is significant. But listen, for a believer, we go through the water once. We go through the rescue once, right? We, we, we pass through the waters once. But every single week, we come to the table, we come to wine. The joy of the kingdom of heaven will always be replenished. And I think Jesus wants us to see that Jesus is better than the ceremonial waters of the law in this wedding. And as we move through John's gospel, that's gonna be the theme. We're gonna see Jesus interact with the woman at the well. And Jesus offers the woman at the well something to drink that will satisfy her heart, something that the well couldn't provide. We're gonna see Jesus heal a man at the pools of Bethesda who believed that he had to wait for an angel to stir the waters and Jesus comes up and like, you don't have to wait for that. Boom, I'm gonna heal you. Jesus is better than the pools at Bethesda. And then we're gonna see later after he feeds the 5,000 that Jesus walks on top of the water. He's above even the waters of the raging seas. See, Jesus is better than the ceremonial waters. He's better than the well at, at, at the, with the woman at the well. He's better than the pools of Bethesda. He's just better. And so the invitation of the gospel is to come and rest in Jesus, that he's the one that has the better wine. He does more than any of us can do in ourselves. Would you guys come to the table? Uh, Miss you, I invite you to put your hands out to receive this benediction uh, with the words that there's nothing better than Jesus and the meal fresh on our lips. Having been reminded of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, go now and joyfully announce that God's kingdom is already here and we are invited to the healing, hope, and abundance it offers. Go in the love of the Father 
and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you.